You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Bill Hanage, Associate Professor of Epidemiology. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, May 29th. Um, so good morning, everybody. Especially for those of you I've not actually had the opportunity to speak to before. As you all know, as of now, we've passed the milestone of 100,000 reported COVID deaths in the United States, among more than 360,000 worldwide. And as you all know, these are likely undercounts. So since I last spoke with you all, um, serology data, antibody tests have started to come in from New York, Spain, France, and the United Kingdom, which have indicated that in these places, despite you know, significant mortality from the initial surge, those populations are very far from the levels of immunity that would be required to impede, um, significantly impede spread. Now, despite this, lockdowns are lifting. And the immediate consequences are hard to predict beyond new opportunities for transmission. And the effective reproductive number is around about one in a lot of places in the US. So we can expect there to be an effect, but the doubling time will be quite slow unless there's a big change. And we might see more isolated spikes um, as a result of um, stochastic effects. Now, in terms of when we will know what this looks like, it'll likely be a few weeks because that's how long it takes for new infections to, prevent, uh, to present themselves and get tested. And finally, I'll make the comment that those antibody results are beginning to suggest um, an infection fatality rate, which is distinct from a case fatality rate, on the higher side of between 1 in 200 infections and 1 in 100 infections. And of course, it's much, much higher than that in some age groups and in people with comorbidities. And with that, I'm happy to start taking questions. Great. Thank you, Dr. Hanage. Okay, it looks like our first question. Thank you, Bill, for doing this. Um, I'm facing this very challenging task of trying to write something relatively upbeat about our pandemic response. And uh, it, it stems from the fact that everyone I know is extremely depressed by our pandemic response. I'm somewhat less depressed because I cover healthcare and really the hospitals and the doctors and the healthcare staffers have been doing some really wonderful things. But I wanted to ask you, from the epidemiological standpoint, I'm not asking you to be optimistic, but could you just say what you have found most heartening about the pandemic response, whether at our national level or just at the Massachusetts level? You know, what, what do you see as having gone just relatively right, if you could? So that's a challenge. Um, that's I completely understand where you're coming from, also in particular from what you're in terms of health reporting. I mean, I have been really astonished at the ability of people to you know orient themselves to threats locally around here in Massachusetts um, especially the healthcare providers and so on I think we've had it's been truly impressive what we've seen there um, it's come at a certain cost because you know if you're dealing with as many infections as you know you see during a surge then it's difficult for healthcare to proceed remotely as normal but in terms of what has happened in response to the surge it's been extraordinary and I, you know, pay tribute to my colleagues. I've seen a few thousand yard stairs, I've got to say, on Zoom the last few weeks, even more so than you get just talking on Zoom. Um, <laughs> but they have been they've been truly, truly impressive. But I, you know, beyond that, I'm also amazed and humbled by the people in our community, uh, the public health authorities around where I live, and the way that they've reached out to like help people. In communities have been really hard hit like Chelsea and you know this this is a time more than almost any other when we really ought to look out for each other 
and I have been moved by the number of people who have been doing that. Thank you. Can I ask one follow-up, even though it's unrelated? Oh, sure. Yeah. Great. Okay. So I, there's um, the CDC is putting out something at one that we're we're probably not allowed to talk about yet. But my takeaway from it was that we we really couldn't have caught the COVID nineteen earlier because it was not triggering surveillance uh, in emergency departments. And it raises the question, you know, it didn't rise to the level that it would have sent a signal in emergency departments. It raises the question of when the next wave comes, if it does, how will we catch that earlier? That's an excellent question. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, but I mean, what I'm going to make the comment about in the first place is that essentially, if you know you have a, if you know you have an infectious disease, which is deadly in a small number of people, small fraction of people, but which can transmit asymptomatically, you have to be doing active surveillance. You have to be doing that um, in order to catch it earlier. So this is one of the things I've been saying very, I've been trying to say very clearly to people who are preparing to reopen. You ought to know what's the signal that would be causing you to, you know, take action to shut down again. And that means a lot of, that means testing. And, you know, the worst signal you can get is if you test people who died already because it means, and they turn positive, because it means they were infected a while ago and you've now got a lot of transmission in the community. N next worse is people who are severely ill and in hospital, because again, it means that's a fraction of people and they were infected in the community sometime in the past. And then, um, you know, beyond that, it's people who are showing up to primary care. And if you've really got a really good handle on it, you might be doing asymptomatic testing just to, for active surveillance in the community, but that's not really happening very many places. There is the possibility that we could test wastewater because the virus is shed by people who are infected via the, through stool. So you can detect viral RNA in wastewater. Now, relating that to exactly how many people are infected in the community is much more difficult. But that kind of environmental surveillance has a history of being used in other diseases. For instance, it's been used to detect polio outbreaks. And so it's the sort of thing which might be one of the, um, might be a helpful way to look at this moving forward. Thank you. Next question. Hi. Um... I'm writing about uh, the Olympics uh, and the impact from uh, the ongoing pandemic and uh, wanted to ask you, uh, the, the Tokyo Olympics were postponed to late July and early August of next year. Um, where do you think we will be in the second wave uh, at that point? And um, I've also heard from uh, non-epidemiologists and they've all said that uh, in their research or in their fields, they believe the Olympics is the worst possible uh, scenario for the pandemic. And I'm curious if, if you share that outlook. Um, by worst possible scenario, you mean like a really bad thing to have happen? Yeah, just the, the, the density of, of the athletes housing, of, of, of closeness of spectators, of the global transportation, just of everything. It seems uh, everybody is very, uh, has a very dismal outlook for the Olympics. And, and, and yeah, absolutely. So um, now predicting what's going to happen in, you know, August or, you know, the summer of, you know, this August um, is challenging. Um, I think I can offer you 
roughly two possible scenarios. Um, and I can and I can give you what I think based on my understanding from other infections is likely to be the case. Um, and then hopefully that'll be something for you to be able to go with and you can maybe have a follow up. Everything depends really on how much transmission starts happening over the summer in, in various different places around the world uh, in the next few months. Because these coronaviruses are more transmissible in the summer months than some of the things we might be used to, like flu. So there will be opportunities for it to build up to a so-called second wave that could be taking place over the summer. Now, it wouldn't necessarily be very large. What we expect to be worse, and it would be proportionally even worse if there isn't much happening on in the summer, is something in the fall. And there are a lot of reasons for that because um, we know that the most effective ways of transmitting this thing are droplet spread, people indoors talking to each other for an extended period of time. We've seen the outbreaks in like the Korean call center where a load of people who were quite closely connected to each other, obviously sat nearby each other, talking to each other or talking on the phone all the time, a large proportion of them became infected. And in the fall, we are more likely to be in situations like that. So there's gonna be more transmission happening. So we expect the next wave to be probably happening around about the fall of next year, but it could quite easily start before then. Now, what that means for the Olympics really depends on the extent to which we have either got a, some measure of control over it, which would be, um, which I think is unlikely to be present at a sufficiently global level that the Olympics would be able to go ahead without significant risk. Or possibly, just possibly, um, there has been a large amount of population level immunity built up by that stage, which will be at the cost, I should say, of you know, a considerable amount of you know, illness and death. But if that were the case, then as a result of the second wave, then the Olympics could be in a relatively safe, uh, comparatively speaking, safe place. Now, as to the question of whether or not the Olympics is the worst possible thing for this to, ha um, to happen like this, there, there is a whole science of mass gatherings and stuff like that, which is one of the reasons why pilgrims to the Hajj, for instance, um, are required to have vaccinations, because we know that they can have things like this have the potential to spread diseases of all kinds uh, from one geographic region to the other. And what that means is that, I mean, for the Olympics, the housing of the athletes, as you say, to say nothing of the crowd, would be a tremendous opportunity for spread and for reintroduction of the virus to places that might have managed to locally eliminate it. About the only good thing I could say about it is that a lot of the events happen outside. Not all of them, but a lot of them happen outside. And we know that transmission is less likely outside than inside. Okay, thank you. Next question. Morning, thank you. Um, I, I actually have a couple. Um, I'm going to start with just one and uh, yield the floor. If no vaccine is developed, um, the math suggests if we need to get to, say, 70% herd immunity in a natural way, that that would involve anywhere from a little over a million to maybe 
8 million US deaths. So that's just my back of the envelope calculation. So I wanted to, to get your view on that, you know, both the numbers and the prospect of that playing out if no vaccine is developed and, and over what time frame that might play out. So those, that's, again, those are very good questions. Um, I, when it comes to back of the envelope calculations, I like them more than you might think. Um, but the way that I tend to think about them when it comes to complicated ideas in epidemiology is that once you get above a certain number of deaths, the exact numbers are not what you should be worrying about. It's more that you should be recognizing the scale of the threat. Um, and I think the scale of the threat is quite large. Now, as for the, I think that it is large, it is potentially within that kind of framework. Now, whether or not that's actually realized depends on a number of things, including our ability to protect individuals who are at risk. So I've noticed that in Massachusetts, if you look at the number of, you know, a very high proportion, getting close to 10% of the population in care homes and nursing homes in Massachusetts, which is around 39,000, um, more than 3,600 of them are, I believe, dead already. So, I mean, we might be able to do a lot of good by coming up with better ways of protecting, protecting the most at-risk populations. Now, that'll have an impact. The other thing will be whether or not we come up with better ways to treat. Um, I mean, remdesivir doesn't seem to be the kind of miracle that we might have wanted it to be, but we'll learn how to use it better if it has any effects. A lot of viral medica antiviral medications work better if they're given earlier on an infection. And we could discover that there might be some better ways of using the medicines that we already have at our disposal, the drugs at our disposal, in order to um, prevent some of those deaths. So the time scale over which that will happen is very hard to predict because, again, of the unknown things that are going to happen around human contact patterns. Because, you know, it can, you can hardly have failed to notice that the among places which are coming out of their lockdowns, there is a range of different kinds of responses. Some places are you know, the bars are full and probably transmitting in those bars. Other places, people are being really wary. And that tracks a lot with whether or not you've had an experience locally of a surge. Now, that means that I would expect that we're going to see this kind of stuttering outbreak, which happens for over the next few months. And then it's going to be re the net. The big question is what's going to happen in the uh, over the fall and the winter because that's when we anticipate there being another wave. Now, how are we are going to deal with that wave? Now, this is one of the reasons why I really wish we can be learning from what we have just been through, because the lessons that we can learn from what we're going through at the moment and how to make things sustainable and how to stop everybody um, going crazy with endless Zoom calls, for instance, is something that is going to be really useful to us um, if, and I would say when, we need to face up to the possibility we need to do something similar in the future. So in going by the experience of other outbreaks um, and other pandemics of this kind, I would expect the, it to be playing out over the next few years with the most important period being the fall and the winter of this year, um, but potentially starting somewhat before then. I'm sorry I can't be more precise because of the fact that Unfortunately, there are many, there, there are 
remarkably so many unknowns about this and there are even more unknowns about the way that human beings are going to respond in response to it yeah no that's helpful quick follow um and i just kind of want to clarify make sure i make sure i understand what you've said the the exact figure for herd immunity which is often put at 70 percent or 60 to 80 it's it's not just that number that's important but the extent to which we develop herd immunity among younger adults and children and people who move around a lot and do a, a better job protecting the older, more vulnerable population. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that is fair to say. I mean, one of the things which is, one of the things which is frustrating when people, um, when non-epi people sometimes ask questions about herd immunity is that they'll sort of say that um, they will point to it as a thing which has to happen. And there's, that's, there's not much truth to that. But the point is the infections among the vulnerable subpopulation are they're kind of wasted when it comes to herd immunity. I mean, a dead person is unable to be infected, so they present no kind of firebreak um, in order to the, to the virus in the community. And we don't want to be in the position of, you know, justifying deaths rather than saving lives. Now, I will also point out that in the younger age groups, those two have risks, as we've seen from the um, sort of Kawasaki-like syndrome, which has been developing among some of the younger, some children who have been infected with it, which are only beginning to be understood. And that's a very rare outcome. However, if you're going to infect, you know, a large fraction of children, then you're going to see more of that. And we need to be upfront about the potential public health risks. Thank you very much. Next question. Hi, thanks again for, for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, and this is a little bit redundant, but we're working on a, on a story um, looking at cell phone records of people over Memorial Day weekend, and it turned out that I think it was 400 zip codes nationwide where cell phone data showed a doubling or more of device movement into retail businesses and other locales. Um, and just wondering kind of what your concerns are about that, um, what that burst of activity could mean, what we should be watching for, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question with a sort of, with an opportunity for a somewhat subtle answer. I mean, the first thing is to say, like I say, you give the virus a highway along which to transmit and, you know, chances are it will take it. It's certainly going to take that opportunity if the highway is there, rather than if the highway is not there. But the issue with cell phone data, which is a bit hard to work with, is that it's not clear exactly how the type of data that's recorded by a cell phone relates to an opportunity for transmission. And you can kind of see this. I mean, if you think about it, you know, um, if you imagine you're living in an apartment building and you put your phone to charge by your bed every night, um, if your phone is trying to sort of, you know, take the argument that you're using Bluetooth to detect connections, you know, your cell phone is going to be shown as being very close to that of your neighbor who lives the other side of the wall, but it has no way of managing to pick up that kind of information because it doesn't have that resolution. So all of these mobility statistics correlate with each other and they will reflect opportunities for transmission, um, but it's hard to say, it's hard to figure out a simple way in which they do that. I think that the bigger concern would be likely to be movements from places where we know there's a high um, population prevalence to places where I know that there's a low population prevalence at the moment because there'd be the opportunity to introduce it uh, to a 
to places where it's currently not particularly common. And you know, every time you introduce somewhere new, uh, then there's the opportunity for local outbreaks. Did you have a follow-up? Um, yes, thanks. Okay. Sorry, I was muted. Um, uh, so your your point is that people, cell phone data isn't that reliable, but and then also we could be going to the beach and staying six feet apart. Yeah. But, but is there, true. right. Um, what should we as as journalists, I guess, be looking for to see whether this is a danger zone then, or is, is cell phone data just not? not no, I think cell, cell phone data is good as a kind of, cell phone data is good as a way of sort of taking the temperature about how much people are moving and how much people, are, and you know, looking at the way it changes within itself over time is a metric mm -hmm. of human activity. But how that human activity relates into opportunities for transmission isn't clear. Now, what you know, what will become clear in due course is there will be, you know, I predict that there will be local spikes of infection, probably not everywhere. But the, and unless you have a relatively high reproductive number, I mean, even if it's not growing, if, if, if the reproductive number is sufficiently above one that the epidemic starts to grow, but not so high that it grows very quickly, it could be a few, um, it could be as much as a month before you really get a reliable signal. So what you need to be doing is sort of, the way that I would say, as a pro, watch the hospitalizations. Um, if you don't have good population surveillance going on, keep an eye on the hospitalizations and see when they start to see um, if and when they start to increase. Look to see whether or not there's a long-term trend in terms of them increasing. Um, and also as reporters, go and check to see whether or not any local authorities are doing funny things about what they class as hospitalizations or not. What are you, are you thinking of a specific example there? Oh, I, I can think of too many specific examples. <laughs> um, um, you can, because sometimes you'll find that, uh, you know, in some places, they will say that if somebody moves from a nursing home to a hospital, it doesn't count as a hospitalization. Or in some places, they will count a, um, you know, and if it's hard to tell the difference between a person who has been hospitalized with COVID versus a patient who has been infected with COVID while in the hospital. So I would just um, recommend that people think carefully because data streams are not always comparable from different places. Thank you. Next question. Hi, uh, thanks so much for letting me in on this. It's very interesting. Um, so I don't know about others on the call. I mean, I'm in Minnesota, and so we tend to be really focused on Minnesota um, to the exclusion of too many other things. And so um, my sense, though, is that um, the numbers here in Minnesota, particularly the Twin Cities, are sort of at variance, I think, from sort of the national trend which is to say I get the idea that um, sort of case counts and fatalities seem to be trending down across a lot of the country, but not, not in Minneapolis, not Chicago, and not the mid-Atlantic. Is that, do you think that's right? And if that's right, I wondered if you had any thoughts about sort of uh, what explains uh, the outliers. So that's a good question. Um, and um, give my love to Minnesota. Um, I was, so I, 
the first thing to say is that the trend down over the entirety of the country is a little bit misleading. Don't forget that you're still, if you're looking at the overall counts, you're looking at stuff which is overwhelmingly driven by the Northeast, where there have been very many more cases like Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey. And those, if you're looking overall, that's what's making that happen. Now, if you look at different states individually, it looks as if there are, and again, with the difficulty that reporting may be not comparable between all of those states, numbers of them do seem to be ticking up. And among them are Chicago and Minneapolis seems to be, although um, Nicole actually forwarded me the email that you'd sent. And it's quite noticeable to see that the numbers of deaths per week have been staying roughly constant. So that suggests to me you, that you actually have an outbreak which is ticking along and which you may be seeing sudden flare-ups in. And this is one of the important things. Uh, we know that the that urban areas, and you know, such as Minneapolis, are more relatively vulnerable to this because of the fact that there's something, it is more deterministic how many people these kind of, they kind of sample. So if you've got a small town, it depends on you know, whether or not somebody happen, who's infected happens to come there and happens to infect some people to kick off an outbreak. You know, if they stop off in the Dairy Queen and just get something, don't infect anybody, and then drive on through, you know, they may not have done anything. Whereas in Minneapolis or in other large cities, you're more likely to go there and have sustained contact of the kind which is likely to kick off an outbreak. And I think that that's probably true in a number of these places. I also think it's hard to separate out the possibility that we are only seeing things there because we're testing. So I'm sorry if this isn't a more definitive answer um, than you might like, but the evidence from the death rate, which has been around 20 a day for the last four weeks or so, um, and some apparently upticking in hospitalizations. It's a little hard to know exactly what that means. It reflects activity in the past, remember, rather than activity happening right now. But I would say that as a metropolitan, you know, as an urban area, you would be, in, I would be paying attention to places like Minneapolis and Chicago right now, because those are the places where I would expect to be seeing uh, any, I would expect to see the first signs of activity from a reopening. Gotcha. Um, that, that's really helpful. Just real quick, a follow-up to a comment you made to someone earlier, and you just touched on it briefly with hospitalizations. So um, uh, is there a state that you would say is, is sort of doing the best job at reporting out kind of full information on um, hospitalized cases with COVID? That's I think a good question. Um, I haven't compared them all enough recently. <laughs> Sorry, I can't, okay. so I can't give you a more definitive answer than that. And I was more able to sort of say, I'm, I'm more able to point the finger at places where, I mean, I don't know if California changed, but I remember California wasn't counting hospitalizations for quite some time. So it's more likely to see people who are, you know, the states which, as an epidemiologist, I would put on the naughty step. Gotcha. Um, so I will, I will come up with a, I will come up with a, league table of the states which I think are doing the best job um, and prepare for the next time I do this call. Um, I should say Minnesota has a great department of public health as well so you know kudos to them. Gotcha thank you so much. Next question. Uh, thank you for doing this. Um, 
I'm interested in finding out what, how can we know how much is enough testing and what local, what kind of a local area are we talking about? Um, how local do we want to be looking? That's number one. And number two, what kind of testing? Some of your colleagues think that antibody testing is a lot better than um, PCR testing. Do you have any opinion about those, those issues? So, okay. Um, the first thing I will say is that testing is really hard. I mean, and the, the science of testing is really hard, but it depends on what you want to know. At the moment, in most places, what we want to know is a question of, does this person who we suspect have COVID, do they actually have COVID? And if they do, that's important because it determines how we treat them and it determines the effort that we then go to to do contact tracing in order to try and limit the spread beyond that individual and whoever they, they um, infected. Now, what we would like to be able to do would be a kind of sort of population-wide passive surveillance, which is um, perhaps people who have shown up and who've just sort of said that they want to get tested and do, or even better, going like house to house in order to determine who was infected at any one time. We're nowhere near that. Even though, as you probably know, um, any resident in Cambridge can get tested now, um, I'm not sure how much that's being taken up. Now, the other thing I want to point out is that the PCR test is very, very different from the, um, from the antibody test. Because the antibody test tells you if it's right, and they're not all very good tests, I should point out. So let's assume that it's a great antibody test. If it works really well, it will tell you if you have been infected up to three, you know, at some point up to three weeks in the past. Now, if it's less than three weeks in the past, antibodies may not have had time to develop, so you don't know. So that's telling you something that happened in the past, whereas the PCR tests are telling you whether or not somebody is infected and potentially infectious right now. So combining the two of them, as you know, the CDC had apparently been doing, and that was in the news last week, is not very sensible because of the fact that if you think about it like you're the, uh, you're the superintendent of schools trying to figure out whether or not to call a snow day tomorrow, what you're going to be doing there is you're going to be looking at the forecast of the blizzard, which is coming in overnight, and not the snowfall totals for the year up to three weeks ago. That's just not a helpful thing to have. So the type of testing that you really, that you would really like to have would be something which is able to give you a, an accurate sense of the state of the pandemic in a community. And I would say at a, relative, at a relatively local scale, because within Cambridge, as you must know, there are some areas which are much more, you know, much more impacted than others. You know, the port, which is just like a few streets in that direction, has got more disease in it than um, areas up and around the sort of the Harvard campus. And, you know, tracking those things is extremely important for public health uh, purposes. Uh, could I ask a follow-up? Go for it. Um, so the PCR test, yes, it tells you whether you have it or whether people have it at that time. But it doesn't tell you over a period of time. That is, it's good for that particular moment. But it doesn't tell you anything about the next two weeks or on a continuing basis, if you want to do some kind of surveillance to know whether say opening up this particular activity 
is yeah. okay or not okay? I mean, how do you do It's that? not a one-time thing. A PCR test cannot be a one-time thing. It's even, and by the way, I've got to tell you, it's even worse than that, because if you look at the um, sensitivity of these tests, they're often very good early on in infection, but then they fade pretty quickly. Um, so you can have a situation in which a, you know, there have been many cases where people who now apparently have serology, um, or they reportedly have positive serology, um, tested negative when they were tested. They were probably tested too late on in the course of infection. But you're right, it's not a one-time thing. You need to be doing a continuous monitoring. This is, this is the important thing, because um, people need to know what's going on right now in order to make smart decisions for the future, which are going to protect lives, which are going to stop unnecessary infections from occurring and you know, prevent those transmission trees growing until such a point when you have to take more intense action to stop a building surge than is actually strictly necessary. So you're completely right. You need to be doing, you need to be having continuous testing. Now that's one of the reasons why um, the kind of environmental surveillance I was mentioning earlier might be helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Next question. Hi, um, thanks Dr. Hannage for doing this call. Um, I actually have a testing question that follows up uh, on the one that was just asked, but I wonder if um, you mentioned sensitivity for um, a diagnostic test in particular. Is there a threshold or a minimum that you think um, diagnostic tests for COVID-19 should have as far as a, a percentage? Um, and I'm wondering if you think there's any difference between tests that say are done in a, a laboratory setting versus uh, ones that are deployed out in um, nursing homes or homeless shelters or, or any other kind of like mobile testing site? Those are, those are good questions. I mean, it, I think that the sensitivity question depends on what your, uh, what your goal is. Um, because there are some situations where you can see, I mean, I, I think that there is a, you want to have sort of gold standard tests that are done under laboratory conditions in which you can sort of, you know, always fall back on if there's any uncertainty. But then rapid testing in the field is likely important in a large number of situations. And what you want to have there is, I mean, again, it depends on the specific circumstance. You do want the tests to be highly specific because if you were in, say, a homeless shelter and a person ends up becoming wrongly identified as infected, then that's a, you know, that's something which is potentially quite worrisome in terms of the consequences it could have for that individual. So, but then when it comes to sensitivity, there are you know, ideally, you would like to have a test that was perfectly sensitive and perfectly specific. But in practice, there's a trade-off between those two things. And it could be that for field deployments, um, something that could be done very quickly in order to test people on a very frequent basis to see whether or not they had evidence of infection could be very helpful. I mean, you can easily imagine a test with low sensitivity, which was if somebody was able to use it every day, then if it was that cheap, then you could get information about people who were actually infected very early on and take um, action to prevent transmission from them. And that would be a really helpful thing to do. But at present, we have got a, it, there's a very different sort of set of questions from 
the type of testing which you want to be doing within the clinical setting versus the type of testing you want to be doing out in the community. Did you have a follow-up? Um, I, um, I think I've got it. I mean, basically, so are you saying essentially that, you know, if, if you are able to do um, testing uh, very frequently, perhaps we can afford to have something that's a little less sensitive. Yeah. Um, but I mean, is that really realistic given our current situation? I mean, I'm not sure if I hear of many people other than, um, you know, perhaps employees in the White House who are getting tested very regularly. Um, you know, so I wonder if you could I think you're right that that does demand a different sort of test. Um, but I mean, I, there is a, in my opinion, the ability to do an inexpensive test in the community, even if it was um, comparatively less sensitive than the ideal within a clinical setting, would be helpful. But inexpensive is a key thing. And that, and so far as I'm aware at the moment, no such really exists. Next question. Hi. Uh, so sticking with tradition here, I've got a question that I know doesn't have an answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to, to what extent do you think extent do you think that uh, super spreaders are contributing to the spread versus less dramatic, you know, person to person spread where somebody infects one or two? And and I'm I'm speaking specifically where one person infects dozens or or hundreds of people at a time. That's an excellent question. Um, and I think that we can go a little bit further than just saying there isn't an answer, because I think there is an answer emerging. Um, so super spreading events arise from what is technically called an overdispersed R0. Now, you all know um, by now that the reproductive number is the average number of people who are infected by a single case but it can be overdispersed, which means that some people infect way, way, way more. So rather than it being sort of a bell curve, you end up with one side of it, which is skewed and those fractions, and that fraction of people end up doing a lot more of the uh, onward infections. And the classic figure that people come up with, and it's similar, it, there's some evidence that this is the kind of thing that we might be seeing with this, is that 20% of the infected people are responsible for 80% of the onward infections. And in this, it may even be a smaller number than that. I've seen 10 to 15% of evidence for that. Now, this is really important. Um, I mean, there's a biological kind of, there's a biological backdrop to this, which is that we know that such an overdispersed dispersed is present in other beta coronaviruses. It was known in the original SARS. It's been known in MERS. Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and it's got an important role in healthcare as a result of, you know, sometimes you can see super spreading events happening as a result of invasive intubations and stuff generating aerosols and stuff like that. Now, the impact for the community or for the transmission of this is that it leads to some of what I was saying about those random effects in local communities because if the majority or a large fraction of transmission chains are likely to go extinct, but a minority of them end up infecting between 10 or 80 people, then the thing that we really want to be looking for is not only infections, but transmission. 
because once you see one transmission, there's more likely to be more of them. And we are collecting data on the sizes of these clusters. It's quite difficult sometimes to know if they all descend from one individual. Um, I mean, we certainly see things like this kind of happening when the virus enters nursing homes, where very rapidly a large fraction of the staff and the residents can be infected. And we've certainly seen it in, for instance, South Korea. The South Korea nightclub um, outbreak, which was in the news a couple of weeks ago, I think, uh, it's believed that one person infected 90 people at a nightclub. And then those 90 people went on to infect, uh, at the last count, I believe it was 63 more and before they were all caught because there was a very rapid testing put in there. More than 40,000 tests were put in place in order to stamp up this. Um, but that shows you how rapidly the virus can enter a population. There's one more thing I want to say about super spreading at an overdispersed reproductive number. There's a theoretical prediction which is quite interesting which is that the majority of introductions to a community go extinct, but the ones that don't can initiate explosive outbreaks. And that is one of the things which is really important if you start looking at the progress of the pandemic across the heartland of the United States, where there are small communities where you're seeing large bursts of transmission associated with churches, meatpacking plants, or any of the other situations in which folks get together and are in close enough contact that they can transmit. Uh, thank you for that. Um, quick follow, and it, this might just be a yes answer. Um, you've already spoken to the, the things that need to be done to prevent second waves and outbreaks and, and further transmission. Is there anything, is the, all those same things apply to super spreaders or is there something unique that needs to be done to deal with this particular problem? So yeah, you're right in the sense that it, there are two ways to deal with the super spreader. If you know what the super spreader is, or if you know where the risks of super spreading are, you can do something careful about it. You can be, um, you can take precautions. It's one of the reasons why intubations are done by expert staff in order to prevent, um, you know, super spreading events within healthcare settings. Um, the other thing you can do is that you just don't give it the opportunity. If you, you know, even if an individual infection has the potential to infect 90 other people if given the exposure to them. If that person during that period of time is practicing social distancing, then that opportunity for transmission just isn't going to happen. And you're going to be able to, um, you're going to be able to avoid these very large surges or local surges of infections. So it's very much the same kind of playbook. But the thing about it, which I think is something which would be very exciting if we could only figure it out, would be what are the risk factors for super spreading? What are the things that we can do which might be able to, be, to intervene? And at the moment, it's not even clear if uh, it's driven by factors of the virus. You know, this person happens to shed more um, or just the contact network. So that, you know, this person makes more contacts. This person shakes hands with a lot of people every day. So we're not even clear upon those two things, but if we, um, as we are able to figure out more detail about that kind of thing, it could be very important in how we approach the next wave. Thanks, very helpful. You're welcome. Um, next question. Hello, hi, thank you for taking my question. So as you can understand by my name and my accent, I'm not uh, from the US, 
I'm based in Brussels and I'm Italian. So in Italy, uh, the, the confinement has just started. I wish you were a scientific advisor to my government. <laughs> yeah, um, so uh, I will try to summarize uh, basically all the, 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 the ideal um, setting of, of, of measures that uh, basically you are uh, suggesting uh, the government to take uh, uh, and attach them to, to the confinement. So all this combination of um, different uh, assessments of transmission, infection, combining different kinds of tests like uh, CPR, CPR uh, high, like, high or low sensitivity with high or low sensitiveness or, or a serological test. All this combination of things that the government uh, don't, don't seem to be able to do or they, they don't seem uh, willing to do. Uh, so uh, they, they, they are te technically feasible, financially, financially sustainable, socially acceptable, at which, at, at which, at which kind of scale, local scale. Uh, this test should be done at uh, uh, constituency level, uh, or building level, or businesses level. Uh, so what actually the recipe for government to do that, to do all the things that you, that you said in, in, in a realistic way, or that's impossible actually to, for government to do that. Um, okay, thanks for the question. Stefano, you might not, it may not be able to tell, but I also do not have an American accent. Um, I'm, I'm originally British. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but I now pronounce my T's like D's, so I say British. Um, the, um, when you, so Europe is actually very interesting because you see a range of different sort of responses to it from, uh, from Italy to Germany. So I, and indeed, in fact, Belgium, which has got some excellent reporting, but has got some uh, fairly sobering statistics. The, I think that in a situation such as this, possibly the best model that you can have is to examine the models of governmental responses which have been effective at different stages. And it's unquestionable that the most effective and sustainable of these so far appears to be Germany. And if you can manage to obtain a situation where you are able to have a force of infection which is comparatively controllable, as you see in Germany, then moving forward on that basis is a, is a wise thing to do. They've got a very good, I mean, the federal um, system in Germany, the lender were able to put in extremely impressive and you know, local testing structures, which were part of the good response. Now, the other thing which is somewhat different, I believe, from Europe writ large and the United States and the UK is that in Europe, the, what we're seeing is a sort of cautious refinement of lockdown recognizing that the consequences of getting it wrong could be pretty grave. Whereas in other places, there appears to be a sort of like, let's open the, let's throw the doors open and it's over, it's, you know, it's fine, which is, as we understand, you know, not the case. And human beings will probably not respond um, as is expected. Now, I believe, based on Germany, that it is feasible for governments to be able to mount an effective pandemic response. The only caveat that I will place on that, and by the way, apologies if there's any ambient noise, but the, uh, the bins are being collected outside and so there's a big truck there. Um, so the caveat that I will place upon that, which is a caveat which really should be placed on everything that anybody tells you about the pandemic, is that we're still very early on in it. So 
you can see, for instance, that Britain, France, Spain, Northern Italy had really, really bad first waves. Same with Massachusetts. The problem is going to be what happens as we move forward and what that means for you know, the future course of the pandemic, because it's not actually obvious. And, you know, you should reflect that people are going to be arguing over exactly how many people um, were killed at which stage and at which place and what the best strategy was probably for decades to come. Okay, so just a follow up. So, um, I mean, the, 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 for sure the Italian government is not uh, doing all the things you said. It, it doesn't plan to do serological tests and uh, PCR tests at a very hyper, hyper local uh, level scale. So, uh, what I wonder is uh, if it's not doing it because it doesn't consider it's necessary or because it, it, it lacks the resources that uh, Germany has, for example. Uh, so I, I do not know enough about what resources are available, um, but it is worth saying that if the resources are not available, then you have hard choices in what tests you're going to be doing. Um, when it comes to serology, it's actually quite important because it determines the, your vulnerability to um, future waves of infection. Now, the reason why you could make the case for governments having not done that is that we are now increasingly able to look at the number of cases that were seen during that first wave and how to back calculate from that to what we think the likely exposure might have been. And so the only benefit of serology would end up being a sort of individual benefit. And the individual benefits is a quite different calculus of the population of benefit. Mm -hmm. And the, the geographical scale that you mean when you say a uh, local level? You mean uh, an entire district or even buildings or uh, shopping centers? What, what's the scale? No, what I, um, what I mean is that, I mean, if you had, I mean, it's something that is, so for instance, if you wanted to take this suburb of Boston, which is known as, um, which is Chelsea, Chelsea's been hit very hard. And it's not clear how many people have any immunity there. But it could be as high as 30%. That means you're sort of halfway on the route to a significant amount of herd immunity, and it would reduce the maximum possible uh, sort of transmission rate within that community. And that's an important thing to know. But for most places, it's not going to be that high. And so the results of serological testing would really be an advantage for that individual to know rather than for that community to know, um, because they might then, and by the way, I'm not necessarily advocating people go out and get serological testing because they are quite um, variable in terms of their reliability. And you need to remember that if it tells you you're immune, you may not be immune because we don't actually know necessarily what antibody titers correlate with immunity. And so we have here a, something which would be useful for that person but it's not necessarily useful for the population as a whole. There is actually, there's a, there's a paper in science which explains it very eloquently, which I'm doing a worse job of it here. Um, but I'd be very happy to send it to you if you send me an email. Okay, thank you. Thank you, bye. Uh, next question. Thanks, just one quick thing. Um, at the outset, you mentioned um, antibody results suggesting an infection 
fatality rate of one in 200 and one in 100, somewhere in that ballpark. And um, I, I guess I wondered two things about that real quick. How new or emerging would you say that uh, sense of things is? And then secondly, most of us have a sense of cases in our community and can do a, you know, a division on deaths over cases for what would be kind of a rough case fatality rate. Is there any way to think about the relationship between an infection fatality rate and a case fatality rate? In other words, if that's the emerging sense of what the infection fatality rate is, can you therefore look at cases in a community and say, you know, here's, here's what, what volume of, of deaths we might expect. I'm not sure. Up to a point, but I would emphasize up to a point. I mean, as you understand, the distinction between the two is that the, the case fatality rate, or sometimes known as the crude fatality rate, is just the number of, you know, the rate with which people identified as having the infection die, the proportion of them that die. But if, for whatever reason, the people who are identified as cases are not all of the people who are infected, which may well be the case if you have a subset of individuals who are minimally symptomatic or have different sets of symptoms, who never present to healthcare, never get the test, who don't know anything about, then the infection fatality rate, which is what's really going on, can be quite different from what you see in the case fatality rate. Now, the infection fatality rate estimate that I was laying out earlier is, as I say, based upon the observed numbers of death from known COVID infection in places like New York, Spain, France, the United Kingdom. And then relating that to the numbers of people who we know have been exposed because of the fact that they have antibodies. And there is a bit of a slight caveat in that the essence may be a bit off because as I said, it takes time for antibodies to develop. But it's beginning to zero in on that kind of um, proportion I was talking about, one in 100 or one in 200. Now, if you're looking at a local level, it's more difficult because local dynamics are often driven by um, sort of very local effects. In particular, if this happens to be one of those diseases which can suddenly transmit to a very large number of people as a result of getting into a sporting event or a church or um, you know, a you know, music gig or something. Um, and foremost of those are when you look at nursing homes because you can quite rapidly get a local spike in the apparent uh, sort of in the apparent mortality rate as a result of those kind of events. But that doesn't necessarily reflect the actual risks of community transmission. In order to do that, you need to be going out and actually kind of, you need to be looking for it a little bit more. Gotcha. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, Dr. Hanich, I received an email question. Would you have just a couple of minutes for that? Go for it. Okay. From a health, public health standpoint, what would you like to see the media emphasize in its reporting on reopenings? Phew, that's an excellent question. Um, I kind of wish and good I, for this audience, too. It's great for this audience. I wish, I wish I'd had a little bit more time to think about it. Um, I think that what I would like the media to emphasize is the fact that um, we, writ large, meaning the public health crowd, are not, you know, we are quite grim about the long-term prospects, but that's not the same as being grim about the short-term prospects or making strong predictions that 
if you do this in this community, you will have a wave of infections in this amount of time. That's not the way this works. I've emphasized to various people on this call the inherent uncertainty in dealing with a disease which is has this sort of over-distributed unawed and which communicate which transmits quite differently in different communities and quite differently in crowded urban settings and comparison with more sort of isolated rural ones. And then going on top of that to figure out the kind of behavior that human beings are going to engage in. Um, the only thing we can be sure of is that given opportunities to transmit, more opportunities to transmit, the virus will transmit more. Now that will, we would say, in due course, transmit into more infections, more transmission chains, and potentially a surge. But exactly when that happens and where is something that's very difficult to predict. Um, I would perhaps, um, I would hope, I would urge reporters who are covering this to make it clear that the epidemiologists and the modelers um, are capable of predicting the future in the most general sense. And that perhaps specifically locally, you can see some things with the effect of reproductive number and your local forecasts and stuff. But exactly what happens where and when is beyond us. However, if we keep making contacts and we let the virus transmit, the outlook is grim. Um, and if not now, then, well, as a famous author once said, winter is coming. So um, think about that. Okay, thank you, Dr. Hanish. Do you have any final uh, thoughts for today? I don't think so, other than the fact it's been really nice talking to all of you. This concludes the May 29th press conference.